0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. After a little break, we're getting right back into it. We're now in Romans chapter 11, verse 16. All right, so things are really going to start to pick up as we close this chapter. And chapter 12 is going to be a completely different shift. And then we only have five more chapters Chapter 16 doesn't really count because it's kind of like the farewell. So as we conclude chapter 11, we're really just going to have four chapters and they're jam-packed with practical applications. So we're you know cutting the corner, you know, kind of entering into that transition right now. So just uh, hang in there as we wrap up this chapter and then things will really pick up. All right. So... Let's read from Romans 11, verse 16, to 24. Right. Who can read that for us? Romans eleven sixteen to 24.
1: For if the first, first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree?
0: Okay, so take a moment to just read it one more time on your own from verses 16 to 24. All right. Alright, so I know it's a little long, this section that we took right now, but it's easier to combine this section whenever we kind of keep it all together. So he's talking about this lump and the branches and the root and being grafted and all that stuff. So what is he saying by... All this talk about the branches and being grafted and so on. What's he trying to say? Or at least we can start out by answering this question Who is this about? Who's he talking to? What's this about?
1: The first thing that comes to mind for me is that Christ says that um, I am the or I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. I think of that passage. So obviously if Christ is the vine, then we um, as humanity are the branches. Or if I feel like maybe more so in this context, it's believers versus unbelievers are sort of the branches that are being either like, cult
0: taken off and grafted in and all of that perfect 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 that's that's essentially what this is all about right we are grafted into christ we are rooted in christ and he does make this distinction between the believers and the non-believers and in this case it definitely relates to the jews and the gentiles i mean this has been the theme throughout the first ten, eleven chapters of this epistle, right? Comparing this uh, th- th- this contrast between the the Gentiles and the Jews, and how God worked with both sides, right? So He says that the lump is holy, the root is holy, like the, that. That's Christ Himself, right? and we sustain our life we sustain our, our our energy everything that belongs to us comes from Christ right so we derive life from Christ just as the branches would derive life from the roots, right? They're grafted into the tree, into this olive tree, for example, right? And if the branches are broken off, then there's no connection to the source of life, right? So what he's trying to say is whether this is related to the Jews or the Gentiles, the source of life is... The tree is the root, and that's Christ himself. That's the source of salvation, right? And he's saying, God is the one who supports you. Right? He says, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you, right? We lean on God. He is our support. He is our fortress, our shelter, and everything. Okay? He's our source of life. Okay? Does that make sense so far? Alright, so he says, You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Who's he talking to right there? Who is it that now stands by faith? Like branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Which specific group is this about? Universe. The Jews. Very good. Very good. So I like the way that Father Patrick Reardon explains it, or at least he puts it in this little analogy. He says that the Jews were grafted in. So that they can provoke the Gentiles by jealousy, okay they were made jealous, and so because of that, they were provoked or or they were inspired by that jealousy to be grafted like the Jews to be um, to be a part of This tree. Okay. And that's why he tells them. If God didn't spare the natural branches. He may not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell severity. But toward you goodness. If you continue in his goodness. Otherwise. You also will be cut off. Right. And then. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. So the ones who will be grafted in, we know that the Gentiles are those who were considered to be the outsiders. Those who were far, were also grafted and included in salvation. Right? So, in this middle section it's unique how or at least like a little strange how he starts to go on this tangent with God's goodness and God's severity why does he like throw that in here in in the mix of talking about the branches and being grafted and support from the roots and so on So think about this we often make this comparison between God's mercy and God's justice right I'm sure you've heard that before and it's a very common comparison that we make how God is merciful on one hand and also just on the other hand okay now that's an oversimplification whenever we look at it in the sense of like these two components of God that balance each other um, as if there are these two different or polar opposites that complement each other existing within God. And that's not really the case. But what we can derive from that sort of comparison, I mean, there is some truth to it, is simply to think of the way God deals with humanity in His goodness and His severity. Right? So sometimes God is gentle, and sometimes God is tough. Right? Not necessarily that there's this dichotomy between His mercy and His justice, but that sometimes God just deals with us lightly, gently. Okay? And sometimes He deals with us harshly, with severity. Right? And that's why He says, if God didn't spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Right, He didn't spare the natural branches. The natural branches are the Jews, the ones who are already a part of His chosen nation, of His chosen people. Okay, So He may not spare you either. So He says, be careful. Right? Be careful because... We can't just take what we have for granted. We can't take God's gentleness and His love and His mercy and His compassion for granted. Right? Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. Right? And then he makes a distinction between when there is more of that gentleness or that goodness and more of that severity. So he says... On those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness. Those who fell, like you know, the ones who are resistant, rebellious, unfaithful. Like God is a little tough with them. Like He twists their arm to get get them back up, right? But toward you, goodness, if you continue in His goodness. Not necessarily that God is mean in one case and merciful and gracious in another case. This is all a product of God's love and His goodness and His grace altogether, right? And out of His grace, He deals with us according to what's necessary, right? Sometimes we just need... A motivating word, an encouraging word, a a gentle little pat on the back, right? And sometimes we need a good kick in the butt. (laughs) And that's where we see the difference between his goodness and that gentleness and also the severity or the harshness that, that comes from God guiding us, okay? He also wants to stress that nothing is beyond God's ability nothing is beyond repair and this is a very inspiring concept to always remember so he says if they do not continue in unbelief they will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again Right? That's in the end of verse thir- uh, 23. God is able to graft them in again. If you were cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature and were, were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Okay, so... Anything is possible and everything is possible through Christ, right? Regardless of what might have happened in the past, regardless of how far we stray, regardless of how much we are broken and we feel like we are really separated from the tree. I feel like I'm distant from God. I feel like there's a big gap. I'm disconnected. I can't really feel God. I can't really hear God. I can't really sense his presence. God is able To reunite us to Himself. Right? And it's all God's work. It's just a matter of our dependence on God, relying on Him. And once we depend on Him, He will graft us into the tree. Right? So, this final part right here, He says, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree right so he's asking a question if if god is able to graft these branches contrary to nature right these branches that don't really belong in the tree these are the outcasts right these are like the gentiles the people who are not a part of god's chosen nation and they were grafted into the tree, right? How much more will he be able to graft the Jews who are not faithful right now, who were already living with the privilege of belonging to God's nation and and being counted as a part of his people, right? So this... Again goes back to that analogy that I shared with you from Father Patrick Reed. and he says that just as the Jews provoked the gentiles by that jealousy so that they can seek what the Jews had so they can search for it and and reach for it and grab it and and desire it and and Because they see what the Jews have, they're jealous and they want it as well, right? We as Christians should do the same for the Jews who are not walking with Christ, right? Because he says there are some Jews who belong to the tree, like these are the natural branches, right? The natural branches are his chosen people, the ones who are already a part of the tree, right? But some of them still need to be grafted because of their unbelief. Right? So I'll read it to you one more time. And with that thought in mind, you'll see it'll make a little more sense. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree again, those are the outcasts of people who are not naturally a part of that tree. How much more will these, who are the Jews, Who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree. It's even easier to bring the Jews to Christ than the Gentiles, right? And just as it was the task of the Jews to inspire the Gentiles by provoking to jealousy to say, you know, look what we have. And because of that jealousy that they see and that desire in their heart, they also pursue that same path. We should also have something that others desire. The Jews should be jealous. Like, you know, when you see someone that has a nice car or has a nice job and you're a little jealous, you're like, I want that, right? And this is what everyone should see in each Christian. That by our love, by our simplicity... By our mercy, our forgiveness, our joy. People see such joy and peace and they should be jealous. They should say like, wow, I want that. Like almost envious. (laughs) Almost like I want to be this person. Right. And of course, not in an evil way, but we should inspire people just by the, the witness that We carry of the Scriptures in walking with God. All right. Any comments or questions there? All right. So We'll split up the rest of the chapter into two sections. Okay, and I'm pretty sure we'll wrap up chapter 11, hopefully get into the first few verses of chapter 12 as well. So let's take from Romans 11, verses 25 to 32. Who can read that for us? 25 to 32, please.
1: I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come out So all will be saved at his, as it is Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them when i take away their sins concerning the gospel they are enemies for your sake but con- concerning the election they are beloved for the sake of the fathers for the gifts and the calling of god are irrevocable for as you were once disobedient to god yet now yet have now obtained mercy th- through their disobedience even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all.
0: Very good. Thank you, Hope. Hope you're our reader for the day. <laughs> Alright, Take a moment once again to read that on your own, and we'll talk about it together. All right, what do you think? It's a little tough section, but I think we could definitely unpack what St. Paul is saying here. What's he really saying? I mean, the first sentence is pretty straightforward, right? Verse 25 He's basically saying, look, don't be blind. He's basically telling them, if you don't open your eyes and open your ears, you're going to think all that matters is your own opinion. And you're going to think that you got it all figured out. And you're going to be blind. Okay. And so he's giving them this fair warning. And I think we could all take this warning to heart. Okay. He says, I don't desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be foolish. I don't want you to think that you know when in reality you don't know. Right? He says, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel. Right? And that's a big problem when we're just wise in our own opinion. We think that our way is the only way. We think that... We're the center of what makes sense, and that's it, right? So, he's telling the Jews, it's not about your opinion, it's not about what you think, right? If that's the case, then you're blind because all you can see is your own thoughts and your own opinion, right? So, that's why he says, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness. Of the Gentiles has come in. Right? Because he knows that the Gentiles, the, the outsiders, will also come in to the flock and experience that salvation. Alright, so he goes on to say, so all, all Israel will be saved, as it's written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, he'll turn away ungodliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. All right, who's this deliverer? Who's this deliverer? Christ. Christ. It's Christ. Right? Deliverer is like a redeemer, right? And you can cheat because you see there's a capital D, right? (laughs) Although that's entirely editorial. But it's Christ. He's the one who comes out of Zion. And because of him, all Israel will be saved. Right? And again, it's not just all Israel in the sense of whoever identifies as a part of Israel. Right? But it's like saying all Christians, right? all who truly identify as a Christian, and in that same sense, those who live a Christian life. right? It's not just anyone that says, I'm a part of Israel, I'm Coptic Orthodox, I'm Christian. Right? It's not the way it works. Right? That's why we even see in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will be saved. Right? It's not just whoever says my name, it's not just whoever identifies by title. But So when he says, all Israel will be saved, it's all those who are truly a part of Israel, who identify not just with the name, but with the life of faithfulness. Right? And he continues to say, as it's written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, he'll return, he'll turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins, right so there's a sense of renewal, right again, God who accomplishes that salvation, God who will come out of Zion, he'll turn away ungodliness from Jacob, he will remove that darkness, he'll remove that barrier, that wall of sin that separates us from God, right This is what Christ did he he broke down. The wall of enmity. Okay? For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When he removes that barrier. When he takes away our sins. It's not just, oh, okay, your record is clean. But now there's reconciliation. Right? There's a covenant. There's a union. Whenever we're reconciled, we're now not just like in this legal contract, but the same way... As a husband and a wife are united. Okay? Any comments or questions about that so far? Alright. So these last couple of verses. In the section we just read. Are a little tougher. But. I think. We'll be okay to digested together. So concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but concerning the elect, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And he actually makes the same sort of comparison in a paradoxical sense. When he says, you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have Now, been disobedient. So, what is this about? You were enemies for your sake, but now they're considered beloved for the sake of the fathers, and you obtained mercy through their disobedience, even though these also have now been disobedient. Okay? What is this all about? We see that when darkness or disobedience or, or whatever is contrary to God is more prevalent, God's mercy and grace shines even brighter. And we saw this, I think it was in the end of Romans 5, I think it was like 520, When he says, yeah, Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Right? So, God's grace abounded much more, where sin was more prevalent. The same way we can apply this to God's goodness and how he says here, they're enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they're beloved. So they're beloved because we see God acting with more grace and in and, and a more powerful way to bring life out of death or to use what was considered to be an enemy, to be a tool for salvation, right? Right? And then we apply the same exact concept for the next part. As as they were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience. Because we see that where there is more disobedience, God's mercy had to compensate for what was lacking on man's part. Right, So he says, Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. Right? So God's mercy is shown with a greater prevalence during the times we are lacking. Okay? For, and then he concludes can, he can that section, For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Right so when God kind of steps away and he's not there to support us and we're left to our own vices and we walk according to our own pride we're living a life of disobedience and that's where we are in a more desperate need of God's mercy. And that's where he says here, that he might have mercy on all. Right, That's whenever we're in a desperate need for God's mercy and His grace and His love and we experience that salvation. Okay, This is a strange way to look at it, but what St. What Paul really wants to say from all of this is that God is the one who, Who is supporting us? He is the root, like he said in that previous section. He is the tree, he is the source of life. He is the one who shows us mercy, and in an even greater sense, whenever he leaves us to our own vices and we're walking in disobedience, so that his mercy can shine with a greater intensity. um, He transforms our enemies so that they are considered beloved by concerning the gospel. They are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Okay? Any comments, questions there? Yes, Abuna.
1: Still, I'm confused about the merciful and... Give us like an example
0: to uh, explain bit more in a simple way, please. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, so think about how much mercy we need whenever we are living a life of obedience compared to living a life of disobedience, right? Let's say... Um, if parents are dealing with their child and their child is 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 just not listening. Okay? Are they gonna need to be more patient or less patient than the time when their child is listening? More patient? Of course. They're going to need to be more patient. They're going to need to be more tolerant. Right? The same way, God is going to need to show more mercy whenever we're disobedient. Right? So that's why he says, You were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience. So because there is more disobedience, we, we obtain more mercy because God has to compensate for that. right? He has to save us from our disobedience. Of course, not that He's mandated to do so, but out of His goodness, out of His free will, His gracious, loving goodness, He desires to show us mercy. Right? And he says, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. Okay. Does that make sense? Thank you. Okay. Any other comments, questions there? Alright, so we'll wrap up these last couple of verses for chapter 11. So, who can read 33 to 36?
1: Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways, past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him, and through him, and to him are
0: all things. To whom will be glory forever. Amen. Very good. Thank you. Take a moment to just read that one more time, and then we'll talk about it together. All right. Okay, this part is one of the most beautiful parts in the whole epistle. What do you guys think about this little part here? I'm going to give you a little sneak peek, okay? Like I mentioned earlier, This is the conclusion of the doctrinal portion of the epistle. We could almost split the whole epistle into two halves, although they're not really equal halves. But the first 11 chapters are more like that doctrinal component. And then from 12 to 16, you have the more practical or the moral application. All right? So he's basically wrapping up the theology or the doctrinal component of this epistle, right? The dogmatic testimony of what serves as a foundation for the implications he will make from chapter 12 until the end of the epistle, right? And he even says at the end of this chapter, Amen. Right? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. It's almost like there's this closure. right? So, with these words, he's concluding, he's basically like giving you his final two cents. He's wrapping it all up together. Like the last two words that he's going to leave you with before he goes into the practical application so this is an important part right like what you want to leave your people with is one of the most important parts of the message right so what's he really want to leave us with as he concludes this doctrinal section
1: to trust god
0: very good to trust god to trust god why, why, why is it so essential to trust God? Like, what's the theological premise behind that?
1: Because He knows everything we need, so exactly. we have to trust
0: Him. Exactly, God knows everything. God is the source of everything. God is life. God is salvation. His goodness is beyond our conception. And that's the sort of message St. Paul wants to leave us with so that he can link the practical application to the next part. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Right? Oh, the depth and in translation, you could say like the height. It's almost like this vertical Translation Oh the depths or the height of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out Like they're beyond our conception The way that He loves us The way that He governs our life The way that He has established salvation for us Right? All of this just as a product of His love. All of this out of His goodness. All of this because He is so gracious. Okay? Now, there's a very deep clarification that we can make from verse 33. And the way... Origin explains it, or he clarifies this and says, When St. Paul talks about the height or the depth of riches, he means the Father, from whom all things come. Okay? And then when he talks about the height of wisdom, which is the very next part, when he talks about the height of wisdom, he means Christ who is the wisdom of God. And when he talks about the depths of knowledge, he's referring to the Holy Spirit who knows the deep things of God. So right here, like you see the Trinity, right? The depth of the riches, right? The Father is the source of all our wealth. He's the source of all treasure, right? He is the source of our life. Okay, and then both of the wisdom, who is Christ, and the knowledge of God, who is the Spirit. Okay, and in the same way, I think it was Irenaeus that says that the Son and the Spirit are like the two hands of the Father. Right? He, he does not work without His two hands. So the Trinity is always working together in this way. Right? And then he continues a little bit later and Origen explains that Paul declares that God is the beginning of the substance of all things by the words of Him and the bonds of their subsistence by the expression through Him and their final end by the term to Him. So it's almost like he concludes this section to say that God is the beginning and the middle and the end. Right? We exist in God. Right? Because He is the beginning and the end and everything in between. Right? Does that make sense? Okay. Now before we... um, To wrap up, I, I actually wanted to start chapter 12. I don't think we'll have enough time. But... We can just close with like a simple practical application. If we can just think about what this actually implies. If God is our everything, if God is the one for whom and through whom and to whom are all things, to him be glory forever, amen. What does that imply? Right? If he is our life. He if he is our everything. Celebrating with him. Say that again, I didn't catch it all. Celebrating with him every time. Celebrating with him? Is that what you said? Celebrating with him?
1: Yes, yes, yes.
0: Very good. So to rejoice, right? To glorify. And that's why he even says, to whom be glory. Right, so that glorification, that praise, right, that worship. If he is my everything, then I offer him my everything. And that's actually the very next sentence that he says. I'll give you a little, a little sneak peek into chapter 12, but he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Right? To offer a sacrifice, to worship. That's what worship is all about: sacrificing. Right? The way St. Gregory of Nyssa looks at this implication from identifying God as everything and and considering that He is the one for whom and through whom and to whom um, all things exist, for of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. St. Gregory of Nyssa says, What person who believes that he lives... From him and through him and to him will dare to make the one who encompasses in himself the life of each of us a witness of a life which does not reflect him. Okay, so I know there was a lot in that sentence. But he's basically saying, what sort of person can declare that God is everything? God is the one For of him, and through him, and to him are all things. What sort of person will say those words, but doesn't actually reflect those words? Doesn't actually live in a way that God basically radiates in our life? Like, He is our beginning, and our middle, and our end. That's basically what we're saying. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things. Like, He is my whole life right if I make that declaration how is it that I can live without him existing in my life how is it that I could make that declaration but my life is not a witness of a life that reflects him okay so that's the question that we should all keep in mind as we conclude this chapter okay we spoke about God's love and salvation, and how He is gracious, even though we are sinners, He saved us, and even though we didn't deserve His grace, uh, like I mentioned in Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, and His salvation doesn't just work in this ex- exclusive sense but it's all inclusive right it's not just for his own jewish nation but for all people right god's love is the theme of theology and that's what the first 11 chapters all, are all about it's it's about his goodness and his gracious heart and how salvation is not limited to a single person or a single nation but it's accessible to all of us and it's again a gift a gift of grace a gift not as a product of our merit but a free gift right and then we'll get into the implications as we jump into chapter 12 next week God willing alright so let's all bow our heads to pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Hear us, O Lord, as we pray with all thanksgiving. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. To Christ Jesus, our Lord, who resigns the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.